So do you guys know that we have a scum in Seattle? Yes. So John and Raylene started it, and Zach is carrying on the torch. Where is he? Come up this way. So Zach and his wife are carrying on the Seattle torch, and we, you, are so lucky that he's here because he is gonna, he's gonna rock your face off for Jesus. Oh, we'll see how it goes. Well, it's, it is really fun for me to be here. I, I, um, you know, in Scumscott, we're a pretty, pretty little group. So Denver feels like the, you know, the mothership, the, the Mecca of the scumpire. And, uh, you know, we don't, I just don't know. I just don't know if people know we exist. I mean, I know. That sounds really mean, but, uh, or if we're just kind of this phantom appendage, um, but it's, but I, I feel very strong connection to you personally. I, uh, I get to come out here every year for the staff retreat. Um, Mike comes out occasionally. I listen, I've listened to every podcast, um, for the last five years just to kind of stay in the loop. So it's nice to see what Larry looks like, you know, for, ex- for example, um, I need to move something here. I'll move this this way. I'll just hold this. You guys hold this. Um, yeah. So, but I, I did want to introduce myself a little bit. Um, just because I appreciate it. I appreciate it when people introduce themselves a little bit. So I grew up in the Seattle area until I was about um, 10. And then my, my parents joined Youth with a Mission. Uh, which is a missionary organization, and moved to Chiang Rai, Thailand, which is at the very, at the very north um, part. And I lived there for for about eight years. They started a home for girls who were at risk um, of being sold into prostitution. So um, my running joke has been that it's, it's all my fault. Um, I have a very uh, distinct memory when I was about eight years old. Uh, my younger brother, who is three years younger, had just really made me mad, and um, I was furious about it, and, you know, I, I guess I had enough of a faith to know that prayer, you know, is worth giving a shot, at least, so I went into my room, and I got down on my knees, and I I uh, folded my hands and leaned over my bed, you know, the most fervent kind of posture I could, and I closed my eyes, and I prayed with all my heart, God, either give me a little sister or change Alex into a girl. And um, Alex is very much a man. And, um, and then I ended up with 30 little sisters later. So my parents are still doing it. They're, um, it's been like 19 years now. So, yeah. But after, um, after I graduated, I moved back to Seattle and went to uh, Seattle Pacific University, which is where I met John Hyde and some other folks who I know are part of this place. Uh, from there, I worked um, at a nonprofit with street kids in downtown Seattle called New Horizons, and then um, ended up at Scum. So, um, um, a little bit more about that. I had heard about Scum while I was in SPU, and uh, I really didn't want anything to do with it. It's like, oh, geez, here we go again. 
another dumb church with another dumb name. And, you know, who do they think they are? Too cool for school. And, uh, I mean, I totally judged. Uh, but when I graduated, I also moved out of the dorms and um, in another part of town. And there was one night I, I was trying to get home and had taken the wrong bus and uh, ended up having to walk home a good portion. And I, it was a Sunday evening, and I happened to walk by the storefront that Scum was renting at the time. And I, I walked in, and I saw a few people that I recognized, John and uh, a girl named Lindsay, who's now my sister-in-law, and um, decided to stick around. And, um, you know, at the time, I was really looking for an older guy who could help me figure out more what it meant to follow Jesus. And and uh, I just hit it off with John, and I, I, I kept coming back. I was so moved by, well, here's a little church that was so diverse, you know, like not so much ethnically, but more socioeconomically. But that mattered to me because I hadn't ever been to a church like that, and it was beautiful. So um, I kept coming back, and after a little while, um, John said, hey, would you, uh, would you think about joining our leadership team? And um, to me, I, what I heard was, hey, would you want to uh, start hanging out with me more? I mean, that's kind of what it meant to me. So I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And uh, a few months later, I said, hey, will you try and speak on a Sunday night? And I said, okay, I can give that a try. Hey, will you do that once a month? And uh, hey, will you start facilitating our leadership meetings if I tell you what to talk about? Okay. And Hey, I'm moving back to Denver. Will you take over the church? Um, and he started telling me some freaky stuff kind of early on. God told me you're the guy who's going to take my place and uh, had to admit to him today that he was right about that because I, I do feel very much like this is God. And so anyway, it's really fun to be here. And uh, thanks for welcoming me. Um, when I was in college, I, uh, I developed a, a minor Messiah complex. Um, you know, not, not quite to the level of Jim Jones and David Koresh, but enough that I, I felt the heavy burden to solve the world's problems. You know, um, AIDS, homelessness, clean water, trafficking, you know, prostitution, all this stuff. And um, there was one day, though, I was walking down from the library and uh, I think class had just gotten out because there were people everywhere. And it was one of those times where you, I, I heard God really clearly. And he just kind of said, look at all these people who love me. You know, it's not on you. You know, it was such, there's this amazing, liberating moment. This vision of the beauty of the body of Christ. That is, as you and you and you and you, as we all kind of do the thing that God has given us to do, and are faithful to that, the, the needs of the world are met. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, feeling free of the burden of being the sole kind of representative of the kingdom of God on earth felt good, but I, I still didn't really, it didn't really help me to figure out my place. Okay, so it was about a year later, uh, there was a guy named Jim Wallace who was invited to come speak at SPU. And uh, has anybody heard of him? Yeah, a couple people. Okay, so he's in D.C. He's written a few books. I haven't read them, though. Um, he was kind of on a speaking tour for a book that he'd just written called God's Politics. And I am 
probably the last person to ever want to talk about politics. I really didn't want to go to this this uh, speech, um, but I went because my friend wanted me to. And um, most of it was boring to me, but he did tell a story that literally changed the whole trajectory of my life. He he picked up a Bible. I don't have my Bible up here. I printed it out today. But he picked up a Bible and he started telling the story about when he was in college himself. He and his roommates took a pair of scissors and they, they literally cut out of it um, every verse that had to do with God identifying with the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame, orphans, widows, you know, like kind of the marginalized people, foreigners, things like that. And he said that when he was done, his, his Bible was in tatters. It was such a powerful visual image to me of the incompleteness of the heart of God without this, this dimension, you know. And I left that night thinking, how can I continue to identify as a follower of Jesus and not align myself in some way with somebody who feels like that? You know, even if it's the guy who I see sitting alone every single day in the cafeteria, I, I got to do something. Okay? And I, I know this is like, yeah, yeah, to you guys, you guys, you know, scum of the earth. But um, I wasn't going to scum yet. And... Uh, so that was the impetus to getting involved at New Horizons. It's like, okay, Jesus prayed that we'd be with him where he is in John 17, 24. And so I took that to mean, well, where's Jesus? I want to I wanna align myself with him with hopes of finding life, you know? And um, so <laughs> that is more related to tonight. Let's... Um, I've got two passages of scripture that I want to I want to touch on tonight. So let's just get those in play. Um, is there one before that? Matthew one. There we go. Okay. This morning I I read it by myself. It was kind of weird. Are you guys okay with reading it all together? Cool. Okay. So Matthew twenty one twelve to fourteen. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. And then let's read the next one, too, while we're here. This is in uh, yeah, Luke 14, 16 to 24. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. 
I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So there's a lot going on in here, and um, I'm not going to try and talk about it all, because there's something that I really am excited to talk about. Um, But there's a few points that these have in common that I think are are worth mentioning. Um, When... So God chose Abraham, and he said, I am going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations and a bunch of other stuff. And from there, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was named Israel, and all of his descendants. And they had this amazing, amazing privilege of having the Creator God covenant with them and bless them so that they could be a blessing and a light to the nations to model to the rest of humanity and, and creation relationship with God and what it looked like. There's supposed to be a conduit of grace to the world. So um, both of these stories are, are, are uh, getting at them a little bit. Okay? The, the first one, the Matthew, the temple one, they're, they're blowing it there by, by misrepresenting the temple, you know, by misrepresenting God. Jesus is quoting here, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah 56. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And there's also a part in there about eunuchs, about, you know, the eunuchs will come and worship. And this, it's this beautiful thing about the people of God making space and making place and being community for these outcasts and, and foreigners. And, uh, but they'd, they'd set up the marketplace there and, as a result, deprived this whole demographic of people from an opportunity to worship in community. Okay. Um, so then, the, um, with the other story, um, the, the, the invited guests, that's who Israel stands for. They stand for Israel. And... Um, this would, what happens when Jesus invites the, all the other people um, would, be, would be really offensive. So Jesus is, is he's extending one of the major biblical themes of the kingdom of God here. Okay? He's, he's participating, he's jumping in a conversation that began 700 years earlier around this theme of a banquet, the Messiah, um, where the, the, all of history would culminate um, with this great banquet. And Isaiah 25 talks a little bit about that. There's, you know, guests from every, every people group. Um, death will come to an end. Tears will be wiped away. I mean, it's very much like Revelation 7. Like people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, worshiping for the throne of God. And Revelation 21, where there's no more tears and no more death and no more pain and no more sickness and all this kind of stuff. So I'll, I'll spare you the whole history lesson that I gave this morning because it was way too involved and too long. But... Um, See, what happens when you forget about grace is you begin to start feeling entitled. And this is kind of what happened. And the religious leaders over time um, who were charged with leading the people to be a community of light to the world, over time perverted and distorted this, God mandated inclusion of outcasts and foreigners to the point that it was directly contradictory. They, they begin to teach the people, and, and I'm, I'm not going to give the history lesson of their sources. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it later if you want uh, after, but um, there were these influential manuscripts 
that began to dictate life. Um, and they, they began to change it. They began to teach that, yes, there will be a messianic banquet, but, uh, and, and, and all these people are going to, all these foreigners are going to be invited, but it's not to bless them. It's because God is going to inflict them with plagues and we can be done with them. Okay. Then there was another teaching that said, yeah, there's going to be a feast with the Messiah and we're going to welcome the, all these outsiders, but the angel of death is going to come and destroy them to the point that believers have to wade through the blood to get to their seat at the table. Then there was another one that said, no one can attend the banquet who is smitten in his flesh paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. So Isaiah's beautiful vision of this messianic banquet, the inclusion of outcasts and outsiders and the healing of all like pain and death has gone badly awry from these three sources. But this is why what Jesus is saying is so offensive because he's directly confronting the very um, narrative that, that they're perpetuating around what this kingdom of God feast is and who gets a seat at the table, okay? So the other, the other thing that I, I um, just want to note is the, the presence in both stories of the blind, the crippled, the lame, you know, all that. I mentioned that a lot already, so I'll leave, leave that. Um, but the other one is that as, as the market people are thrown out of the temple and as the invited guests tragically bail on this lavish feast of the generous master in lieu of the stupid other stuff they were doing, you know, their place is filled, right? And the first one, I, I love this so much. So Jesus kicks them all out, and then in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. So I, I kind of imagine all those people are just kind of standing outside the temple looking in. And then they see Jesus driving all those people out, and they say, hey, there's space there now, man. Let's go. And then they, they, they come in, you know. They're kind of helping each other along, and then Jesus heals them all. Okay? I mean, this, this is what what's the, the Luke version, um, or at least the story we're looking at tonight the invited guests don't come but the master's bent on seeing his table full he has made this lavish feast you know he so i mean back then there's no refrigeration you got to go around say okay who's coming i got to know how much food to make and they all say okay i'm coming it would be like if i invited you over to my house and i i budgeted all this food and we made it all and then i say okay it's ready come to the table and you're like, oh, I got to go feed my cat and I got to go pay my cell phone bill. And, you know, you know, my shoes kind of ratty. I think I'm going to go buy a new pair. I'd be like, what? I mean, this is the kind of insult that it would have been. But their play, the, the master who made all this food, he's like, I'm going to feed people with this. I'm going to bring people in. Did, did anybody hear about anybody here hear about Fatberg? I, I love this story. It's so gross. Um, so I, I, I don't even know how I found it. I just stumbled across it. There was this, um, this whole like, region of London 
that was there it was totally backed up like their sewers so i mean there was like sewage in the street nothing was draining there were sewers backing up in homes and it was just a mess so they sent these city workers to investigate it and they found a 15 ton mass of congealed fat and baby wipes that's the size of a small bus isn't that gross so they took care of it and then the sewer functioned as it was meant to do I think that's what Jesus is doing here, right? I mean, he's, he's clearing the crap. I mean, you can think about, I mean, to Jesus, okay, I'm trying to think of analogies in high school. How did that work? Okay, so Jesus is to city workers as, you know, the temple marketplace is to Fatberg, okay? You tracking with me? And he's... He's flushing it out so that the kingdom of God, as God designed it, can flourish as it was designed. And people can experience the lavish love and grace of God. Next. Um, so th- that's all great stuff. But what I love about these stories and what I really am excited to talk about tonight you're like, what? You're still not getting into it? I love how pissed Jesus is in this story. I love that the master of the banquet is angry. And it's not because it's like, oh, Jesus, that Jesus, he's just so real. It's not like that. It's not, yeah. I, um, you know, anger, as I understand it, uh, is, is a secondary emotion, right? So, so typically there's, well, always, there's, there's an underlying thing going on if you're angry. Maybe like fear, uh, you feel disrespected, you've experienced injustice, some kind of sadness, maybe anxiety, worry. This is my experience. Does that ring true? You guys, it's like... You don't just get suddenly angry, right? And maybe you do, I don't know. Um, but there's, there's a root to the anger. It's tied to something. I mean, I think this is, this is maybe what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 4, where he says, do not let the sun set on your anger. I don't think that as believers, we can afford to read that as, as, okay, I just really got to, like, manage it. I just really got to muster up my, my you know, self-control and just stuff the anger. Because if, if it's a secondary emotion, that's not going to work because we're not dealing with the real problem, right? So I think, I think in this, Paul is, is asking us, say, don't, not, not asking us to bottle it, but deal with the root because the anger is symptomatic of something else. So if anger is a secondary emotion... And if Jesus is angry about what's going on at the temple, and if the master is angry when his guests turn down his generous invitations, what is at the root of that? <clears throat> I think I got a little bit excited earlier and kind of gave it away. But I think this, the anger that we see, it doesn't tell us I think we I think the Jim Wallace story 
illustrates pretty well that God cares for the, the mar- for marginalized people. But I think the anger in these stories illustrates the the intensity of God's care of his of his love for these people. I mean, do you get angry about things you don't care about? Not really. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of crap that Jesus had to endure, right? And there are a few times he gets angry. Like there is like one time when they're um they these guys are he asked them a question about Sabbath. You know, is it better to get this, you know, ox out of the ditch or leave it there or something? Or is it, no, 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 I mean, you do this, I'm butchering it. I was like, oh, he's saying, is it better to heal this person on the Sabbath or let him go or something like that? And they're silent, you know, and Jesus is angry. You know, that's, that's next sermon in five years. But... Um, So, yeah, in, this, in the same way that the Jim story, the Jim Wallace story kind of jolted me into an awareness of this part of God's heart, these stories about the anger and, like, the emotion of God, I think, help me to see the passion with which God pursues it. And that is a, an incredibly encouraging thing to me. By the way, I've been, I've been thinking about... Um, like making some posters or Hallmark cards or shirts that um, have a picture of Jesus, like whipped in his hand and turning tables. And then the text says, Jesus loves you. Think it would fly? Because that's at the root of it, right? So what? Um, it makes a difference to me because there are other ways in my life that God has miraculously intervened. And shown to me, this is something that is important to me. I mean, I, I imagine that if you're here, it's you've experienced that in some way. Liberation from bitterness or, you know, someone you were never able to forgive or something like that. Something, I don't know, but like, because God cares about it so much, he gave you the strength to do it. And you look back now thinking, how did that ever happen but for the grace of God? That's, that's kind of how I think about this. <clears throat> um, but it's not... So it's cool. It's, it's like, okay, great. Like God really wants... These outcasts and people who don't feel like they have a place at the table to know that they do. He really wants outcasts and to have a place and community in which they can worship. 
But that's, it's not, not always easy, right? In, uh, can you go to the last, is it the last slide? The one that shows verse 23. Yeah. So then the master told the servants, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Um, I want to camp on compel for a minute. Uh, I think it's really important we understand this because some of our brothers and sisters in the faith in centuries past have misunderstood and misused it to tragic results. This, this was the verse that Augustine used to invite the Latin military to force this whole other um, wing of the church to come into his kind of like Latin fold. Um, more seriously, this is the verse that the Spanish Inquisition used to justify their brutalities. Okay. So I, I really want to talk about it because I, I wouldn't want you to leave here and hold people down the street at knife point and say, God says, come to his feast, or something crazy like that. Um, the point the master is making is that he knows how the strangers on the highway will respond. Okay? They're outsiders with no social status, invited to the banquet of this healthy, or healthy, he may have been healthy, wealthy though, nobleman. We need have a really hard time believing that this is legit. I mean, this is the kind of thing where at first exposure, grace is unbelievable. Almost, almost like just stupid. I mean, you can see the, the lies going through their head. You know, they don't really want me. It's impossible. Now look who I am. Oh, they're just using me to impress others of their nobility or their generosity, you know? You know, why, why, how would the master even know that I exist? And why are you playing with me? So the master knows that the servant is going to need, the servant who's bringing these extraordinary invitations is going to need some special way to convince these outsiders that they're indeed invited and that they're wanted. Um, you know, grab their hand, bring them. This is kind of like what Mike was talking about last week. I remember because I listened. Um, you know, he's talking about feeding feeding his kids vegetables because he knew that they needed it. Same, it's the same kind of compel, compel idea. Um, so, you know, he's saying, "I want you by all means, whatever you have to do to convince them that this invitation is serious. You know, do it. Let them know." Um. I mentioned this morning that no one has to compel me to eat ice cream. You know, I love it. I ate four bowls at the retreat with the staff this weekend. Um, I really love baseball, too. I, I played as much as I could growing up. Um, 
my career definitely took a hit when we moved to Thailand. Nobody plays over there. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't play competitively till after I was 14. I blew out both of my shoulders. Um, and I, I not, didn't turn out to be a very big guy, you know. So I've kind of buried that dream. But um, when I think about my love for baseball and my desire to play, um, it helps me to connect to this. Because I feel like it would be like me walking down the street and some scout from some pro team, you know, rolls up in his limo. He's like, are you Zach McCauley? And be like, yeah. He's like, uh, we want you to come try out for the Seattle Mariners. Just because that's where I live. And it's convenient that way. And I would be looking around thinking, like, what? Like, how do, how do you even know that I exist? You know, am I getting punked? Now, where are, the, where are the hidden cameras here? Because, I mean, why, like, how, how would you even know about me? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a pastor at Scum Seattle. I mean, I don't even, I don't even play softball. I, I mean, what, what are you talking about? This is, this is silly. Um, I think it would be like that. Because people, people in need of special pleading... Like, it's because it is an unbelievable thing. And they need a miracle or some kind of sustained, creative, consistent commitment and invitation over and over again. You know, I, I don't think it's enough to say, hey, um, will you, you want to come to church with me one time? Or... To do a drive-by, Jesus loves you. you know? And then when people don't come, be like, well, I told you, man. If you don't want to come, it's on you. It's, you know, I did my job. I mean, think, think if, if the master had, or if the servant had come back to the master, and he's like, where is everyone? He's like, well, I told them. I said, hey, you, do you want to come to this feast with me? And they're like... Now, what are you talking about? So, yeah, they're not here. I mean, I am profoundly challenged by that. Because, you know, even like, and I think in a way, like, we kind of have this, this inside track, being part of a church with a funny name, right? But even with that, we're still contending with massive cultural perspectives of what church is, okay? Even at a church called Scum of the Earth, I think there's still this, this underlying, I mean, regardless of anything that we do, even if everything that happens here and happens in Scum Seattle is perfect, let's just say for fun, because of the cultural perceptions of what church is and the qualifications that you have to have to go to a church, it's going to be really hard to get people to come. My life, you know, you don't know what I've done. This, this happened to me a couple months ago. I was walking down the Ave. It's, called, it's really weird. It's called University Way, but everyone calls it the Ave. Uh, it's, it's the main drag in our neighborhood that, where Scum is. And I was walking, and I saw this guy named Joey. 
I said, Joey, I haven't seen you in so long. He used to come by, come by scum. He's like, dude, I can't come to church, man. You don't know what I've done. I just got out of jail. That's why I haven't been around. Church is no place for me. I was so bummed by that. You know, if I can't hang my hat, I mean, well, it told me I can't hang my hat on a name like Scum of the Earth and be okay. We have to live creative, compelling lives. You know, it besides the the difficulty of like people's profound sense of unworthiness. Um, you know, there's also the reality of like we we are engaged in spiritual battle. You know, Second Corinthians four talks about how the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You know, explaining the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Remembering that we are in the thick of a battle here and that people may be, more, may be victimized by the enemy rather than just trying to be difficult, that, that, that helps maintain grace in my heart. You know, remembering that, man, maybe this guy isn't saying no because he's just trying to be a jerk and he's just trying to blow me off. Maybe there's like, maybe there's like a spiritual dynamic here and this guy just can't see it because he's been blinded. I don't know. But remembering how much God wants this, it, it puts a lot of wind in my sails. I, I went to this little um, conference couple months ago and there's this Chinese guy there his name was Ying Kai and he was talking about this crazy church planning movement they had they had like a million baptisms in like 10 years so that was pretty interesting but anyway he told this story about um, when he was a kid growing up in rural China his, his, his family was really really poor I mean and, and his dad was like the ultimate penny pincher. No luxury of any kind, you know, totally, you know, pragmatic and just do what we have to do, you know. So he, he kind of had to resort to making making toys out of like, you know, stuff he found in the ditch and, you know, garbage cans and stuff. <clears throat> so he's falling asleep. His parents think he's asleep. He's on the other side of this thin little curtain. And um, his parents are in the other room. And he overhears his dad say this staggering thing. He overhears his dad say, I think I'm going to buy little Ying a bike. What? So the next morning, he wakes up. And he goes over to his dad. He says, Dad, Dad, will you buy me a bike? And his dad was totally defenseless. And what's he going to say? You're already talking about how much he wants this thing. And then his kid comes to him and say, will you give me the thing that you want to give me? I mean, there's no way around it. So this really encourages me to pray. God, will you help me to love in a compelling way these people who you want to compel to your banquet and to be just lavished by your love? I mean, how's God going to say no to that? 
I don't think it's going to be easy. But I feel a lot more encouraged by it if God is involved. I mean, this is like really good news to people. I, I told a story this morning of there's this kid who I first met at New Horizons when I was working with street kids. And I was having lunch with a coworker in the spring. He said, hey, did you hear what happened to Dust? That was the street name. I said, no, what happened? He's like, dude, I don't even want to tell you. Just go look it up. He's in the King County Jail. So he, I looked it up, and um, yeah, I don't even know. Well, so he two counts of rape, one of a disabled person in a park, and the other an 80-year-old woman, and one count of burglary. I was like, I have to go. I have to go see this kid. So I, I went and. And I, I kind of practiced, you know, when, when I went and visited him is when I was kind of studying this Luke 14 passage. And I, I shared with him some of what I was learning about how desperately God wants him at his table and that he's not disqualified because he's not, right? Because what did the people in the country roads have to do to earn a spot at the table? Nothing. They weren't there because of their own merits. They were there because of the generosity of the master. I mean, it was because of his goodness that they had a place at the table. Nothing that they did. And this kid just started bawling and bawling. It was, it was really amazing because he's on the other side of the, you know, talking through the glass. And I mean, this is, this is good news. And for people who I think are aware of our place at the table... It, it might be hard to remember what it would be like to not be there. You know, I don't know. But I just want to encourage us to be, um, to keep, like, proclaiming it, to keep giving voice to the good news that the kingdom of God is in this world that is just, you know, aching. Um, I have no idea how long I've been talking. But. Um, so I, I mean, I'm really aware of like my limited capacity to help people who need a lot of help. And honestly, a lot of my strategy has been just to show up and let God do what God is going to do. Because I, I think that he, God is like really stubborn about wanting to use his people to do his work, you know? I mean, it's, it's, you hear about the occasional story of, I was sleeping and this guy in, a, in white clothes came to me in my dream and said, I am Jesus, follow me, you know? That happens occasionally. Has it happened to anyone here? No? Um, I mean, I was just, that would have been cool. That's all I. Um, so, I mean, one, one, one quick story. I, um, do you guys remember a guy named Ned Baruby? He was here last year around this time. 
because he came for our staff retreat last year. So he came out of Seattle once, and he shared with me this Bible study of going through Acts, um, going through Acts about all the, these people when they're praying and all the cool things that what happens when people pray together. And so I was so fired up, and I, I, um, I basically replicated his Bible study for our Sunday night service and, and said, okay, I'm going to make all this time during the week. I'm going to open up the storefront, and you guys come pray whenever you want, and I'm going to be here, and we're going to pray together, and you know, we're going to see the neighborhood changed and all this stuff. And, like, nobody came except for two um, street kid friends of mine. And they, they came in, and, and they were like, hey, can we pray with you? I said, yeah. And the one kid, um, you know, he was, like, he was, like, barely walking. He was, I mean, it was a pretty warm day, but he was, um, like, shivering. He had, like, eight layers on and, you know, could barely walk. And um, the other kid was, you know, he was just totally morose about some situation involving his kid and not being able to see him anymore. And uh, so I said, okay, well, how about if, you know, you and you and me will pray for him, and then you and me will pray for him, and then you guys pray for me. And I remember praying, like, God, I, I can't do anything for these guys. You know, I was just very aware of my helplessness. But you are God. And we got done praying, and the one guy, the sick guy, he started, like, tearing all his coats off. And he's like, I feel so much better. I feel totally good. And I was like, really? <laughs> um, but it was, like, such a powerful lesson to me that we don't have to feel like we have all the answers. We don't have to feel like power surging through us for God to use us. I think God wants to be God, and he just wants us to be a, a physical presence, a conduit of his love and his grace. You know, It's not necessarily a quick fix. I don't want, I, I, you know, I, it'd be cool to encourage you, but what I'd hate to happen is that you guys just go out of here, and then um, when there aren't miraculous results tomorrow, that then you get discouraged. The miracles have happened, but it's not every day, right? Um, I was going to tell a story about that, but I'm going to skip it. Because, you know, I've been talking a long time. But just know that, you know, it's like, I mean, we, it's how it was for me at least, right? I'm here today because of faithful, steady people who stuck with me <laughs> even when I was abusive to them, you know? And it's hard. But. <clears throat> um, I really don't think like you... You have to change a whole lot. Um, I think these people are everywhere. I think everywhere we go, we're going to have people <clears throat> around us who feel like, what? You think God loves me? I think you're crazy. People who think that it's crazy that we would think God has a place for them at his table. Um. I think they're everywhere. 
<clears throat> so I don't I don't think that um you know maybe maybe like I was in college you feel like you need to make some intentional shifts to position yourself among someone like that but and so go for it um yeah I don't really know. Maybe I'll just wrap it up by telling one more one more story that um, I think illustrates a lot of this. And this is, you know, another kid that I um, so I was working in our drop-in center. This is again when I was at New Horizons, and um, I was working, and these two guys came in, and they they literally had blood on their hands. Yeah. So they they ran into the bathrooms and they washed off and then they ran out the back door. And just as the door was closing, the cops ran in the front door. They said, have you seen two guys? <laughs> and uh, we all were kind of like that way. Um, actually, I don't know what we said. Confidentiality. I don't know how it was. That was weird. I didn't have to make the decisions that day. But anyway, they got caught. And they were charged with murder. Um, they had killed a guy just like hours before. Kind of, um, it was a a fight that went too far, and the guy died. And um, so I was thinking about, okay, John seventeen twenty four, be with Jesus where he is. I was thinking about Matthew 25 and, you know, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And one of those things, you visited me in jail. Okay, I'm going to go. I didn't really know the kid that well. The chaplain went to visit this other guy, and I went to visit Smurf was his street name. And he was, like, really mad. He was just so angry. It was the most, like, awkward interaction ever. I mean, what do you, I didn't really know what to say. Like, how you doing? You know, what, what's jail like? Did you do it? Like, I didn't know um, what to say or where to start. And um, and I eventually left, but I, I went back, and it was really terrible again. And But it got a little better. But then about the fifth time, um, I went back, and he, the, the jailer brought him in, and he picked up the phone, and I looked through the glass, and, and like, there was, like, life in his eyes. And I was like, whoa. You know, and I didn't know what to say again. You know, I was like, oh, "What happened?" And uh, he's like, "Well, uh, there's not a lot to do in jail, and I had a Bible, and so I was reading the Bible, and somewhere in First Samuel, God like came into my jail cell, and I felt this amazing, overwhelming presence, and I knew that He loved me. And uh, I was like, "Wow, really?" And he's like, "Yeah," and. Uh, He's totally helped me to forgive everyone, and I'm I'm just a new person. That, I mean, I couldn't argue. And he was so hungry for like, well, what do I do now? What What does it mean that God loves me? You know, he was so like thirsty for someone to disciple him. And so I would visit him a lot more, and I eventually sent him this book. It's called Red Moon Rising. It's about this prayer movement in England that I'd been reading and really encouraged me. So he he read the book. Um, before I visited him the next time. He's like, hey, I read your book, and um, yeah, we started some prayer groups, and we started praying for people. We've had we've seen four people get healed already. You know, one guy had this rash, and another guy 
have this like wound and um you know it's crazy stuff i went back the next time and he's like man we prayed for my mom she's not even here she has cancer her cancer's in remission and i was like wow he's like yeah and then we we found out that there was a inner cell inner jail mail system so we started sending mail to people we didn't know in the other floors and just telling them about god's love and how he you know answers prayer and asks if we could pray for them and now they're starting prayer groups up there and i was like wow really so like apparently this whole like prayer movement was circulating through the king county jail and uh he's like you know I'm going to be in jail for a long time. And I actually just got reacquainted with him. I got a letter from him like last week, just before I left. And he's not too far away. I'm hoping to visit him after I get back. But he said, um, you know, I'm going to be in here a long time, but I, I see like my life isn't over. And it's a deception to, for people to think that just because they're not in jail, they're free. You know, I was like, wow, that's deep. He's like, you know, it would be a real mistake for me to to be in here thinking that to spend all my time feeling sorry for myself, regretting what I did, or to spend all my time waiting for that day when I'm out of jail. You know, I'm going to waste 20 years if I do that. I'm going to miss out on all these people that God has given me to love and to pray for. I was like, wow, yeah, go for it. That sounds great. So all that to say, I didn't really do anything there. I visited him a couple times. I gave him a book. I mean, God really came to him in a miraculous way. It's someone who, I mean, he just killed someone. You know? I mean, you got to be feeling pretty crappy about yourself after that happens. So if, if there's, I, I say that for a couple reasons, this story. I'm almost done, I promise. If... If God, I say that first to people who are wanting to reach out. And I want to encourage you, keep going. Because I promise you, God wants this more than you do. Just be with them. Pray for them. Invite them. Be generous with love. And trust, trust the results to God, you know? But it takes a while to, you know, I'm, I'm glad I didn't stop after that first visit or after those first two jail visits, you know. But I also want to tell that story because I think even within churches, there's, there can be this pervasive idea that God doesn't want to use me. You know, I, I don't have like any spiritual gifts or I don't. I just, I don't know how to pray, things like that. And um, I just just don't agree. I think that, I mean, if, if there's hope for this kid who killed somebody, that he, he can be used to start this prayer movement in the King County Jail. Man, I have hope for you too, you know? So, I'm gonna pray. And then I'm going to be done. Father, I, uh, I thank you for the gift that it is to be part of this scum family. And I thank you for your word that gives us hope and life. 
And Lord, I, I think back to that passage of the, the parable of the sower. And um, that anything that's not understood, the, the enemy snatches it away. And so I just pray that you would um, help cover things up and stow it away. And that whatever um, was said that was of you would bear fruit. Lord, I, I pray that you would um, give your spirit to these people as, as their friends and their family and their neighbors and their coworkers come to mind who don't think they have a place at the table. And I pray you would empower these people to, to be your, um, your agents of love and of grace. And, uh, Lord, we look forward to seeing what you want to do. We look forward to seeing the intensity of your love played out in the people that we love, too. Amen.